The king is dead. Long live the king. And those words were first said in 1422, um, whenever the French king, Charles VI, passed away and, and his son, Charles VII, was about to ascend to the throne. And those words, the king is dead, long live the king, became almost a way for ancient monarchies to transition from one king to the next without mass civil war breaking out. Because whenever a leader dies or a leader moves away, it leaves a vacuum. And there's this moment where the country can almost be like a powder keg of tension and worries and frustrations about the past and fears and anxiety about the future. And we might think this is an ancient problem, but we're, we're in 2021 and on the 6th of January this year, we saw what this looks like whenever we saw thousands of people storming the Capitol building in the US. Why? Because they didn't want the change of power to take place because it seemed to them threatening and they thought it made them vulnerable. We might think that ancient stories about kings being killed and the transition of one king to the next are something that's really foreign and really alien to us. But really, this is the world we live in. And if anything, the tensions around that question of who is your king are only more heightened because not only do we have a king who lives and a king who dies, but now we have winners and losers in elections. Now we have people who win the debate. Now we have people who are happy to see their side coming out on top. We have those who are sore losers and we have those who have sore winners. And in the midst of that, we see people argue and bitter. How many of you have ever seen a civil political argument on social media compared to all the uncivil ones? And you'll maybe begin to see where the problem lies. That question of, who is your king is a really important question. And it's a question that strikes right to the heart of how we interact with others and who we believe is really in control. And in this passage, we see David hearing about the death of the king. And we might be tempted to think that the next words out of, the, the, out of this person's mouth were gonna be, and David, you're now gonna be king. But that's not what David says. David makes three really profound uh, comments on the life of Saul. And he points out things um, that we might have skipped over. And he is able to mark the king that has passed before he becomes the next king. The first thing that we see David talking about is he shows respect for Saul. I wonder if you were reading through this and you heard the story of the Amalekite and you thought, David's a little harsh on this Amalekite fella. You know, he has shown up and he has perhaps performed a mercy killing of Saul. And he has tried to bring the crown and the armlet, what we reckon would have probably been about 80 kilometers down to David, so to pass on power to David. Why does David then kill or order that this man to be killed? Why not celebrate? Why not say, oh, thank you so much for the crown and for the armlet, those two things that act as the, the token of authenticity of your kingship? Why doesn't David say, oh, thank you so much and I'm gonna give you honor and riches in return? No, he turns around and says, kill him. And it's maybe helpful for us to take just a wee moment and think why David says that before we, we jump onto the next book. Because we might think the Amalekites being unfairly killed here. But there's just a few wee things I want us to observe. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, if you literally just turn backwards over the page, we'll see a very different story about, or chapter 31, sorry, about the death of Saul. 
than the one the Amalekite gives us. And it seems very bizarre, the story that the Amalekite tells, that there was nobody else around Saul apart from this one Amalekite. A king in battle would never be cut off from his men. He would do everything he could to stand in their midst to encourage them, but also to protect himself. So what is likely happening with this Amalekite is rather than somebody who was taking part in the battle and managed to escape, the Amalekite was probably walking through the fields, stripping the dead, taking anything that he thought was worthwhile and valuable. And what could be more valuable in a kingdom than the, than the, the crown of the king? We also see that there's an ancient history between the Amalekites and the people of God goes all the way back to the time in Exodus. One of the first battles that the people of God fight against another nation is against the Amalekites. Back in Exodus 17 in the Battle of Rephidim, where Moses holds his hands up, and as he holds his hands up, the people of Israel win, and when he lowers his hands, they begin to lose, so he has to have his hands propped up. That was a battle against the Amalekites. And whenever Israel's without a king and Israel's without a leader in the book of Judges, Um, We read of how the Amalekites banded together with other nations like the Moabites and they raided into Israel and they displaced the people there in Judges 11. And in 1 Samuel 15, we see that the reason why Saul's place as anointed king over Israel moves to David is because he refuses to dispel a certain people group from the land. That people group is the Amalekites. And if you were to be a modern Jewish believer now and read a lot of the modern rabbinic literature now, they will still look back as the Amalekites, not as this nice, polite country who maybe would have helped them, but they see them as evil itself. So a lot of the Hasidic Jewish community will look back to something like the Holocaust and will say that it is akin to having the Amalekites attacking you was what happened at the the Holocaust. They come to represent pure evil for the people of Israel. And David himself has a complex relationship with the Amalekites because in 1 Samuel chapter 30, he has two wives stolen by the Amalekites. And the city that David's taking, or the town that David's taking refuge in is called Ziklag, one that had, had been put to the torch by the Amalekites whenever they had raided it a few chapters ago. And they took every woman and every child and they left the place to burn. It's not an honorable people. And so whenever this Amalekite shows up saying, I have a crown and I have an armlet and I wanna give these to you, David, because I think you're gonna be king, David smells a rat and he knows that this is probably something a bit more complex going on, that there's ulterior motives going on and that really this Amalekite is trying just to get his foot in the door with the new king and to try and curry a bit of favor. But what's interesting is the reason that David then says that he slays this Amalekite. It might make sense for him maybe to say it's because you stole two of my wives. It might make sense for him to say because you have burned the city that we're now standing in. It might make sense for him to even say because of the long history of warfare between our two peoples that we're, I'm going to kill you. No. The reason David kills him is he says, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. David still has a view of Saul that says, he is God's anointed. He is God's chosen man to be king. And no matter how bad the king is, 
It's still a king that God has chosen. And who does this Amalekite think he is that he can kill the person upon whom God's anointing rests? That might sound really bizarre to us. We, like, why on earth would you ever think about a king like that? Surely if you've got a bad king like Saul, you would want to see him dead. But that's partially because we have a really different view of authority than would have been in the ancient Near East. Because we tend to think of authority as derived by a whole pile of people banding together and electing a, a leader. And that person then derives their power and authority um, by the fact that there's a lot of people behind them who said, we want them to lead us. But in the ancient world, that's turned on its head. Because in the ancient world, a king isn't appointed after an election and an emperor isn't chosen after a referendum. Rather, a king is seen as somebody who's set apart by God. So authority doesn't come from the bottom up as it does in our culture, but it comes from the top down. So it's not just that a king is somebody who belongs to a nice family. Kings were seen as having been appointed by God himself. This is why in the ancient world, and if you read a lot of history and look in the medieval history, there would have been a lot of debates and wars around who was the legitimate king. There was the 100 years war between England and France that was all about whether the king of England also had rights to the king of, kingship of France because of his family, uh, his family and his inheritance and who he was related to. Because power came down from God who chose those families and chose those people. And David, by saying that Saul is the Lord's anointed, is recognizing that Saul's power and authority comes from God first and foremost. So he could have put the boot in, he could have slagged Saul off, but instead he says, this is the Lord's anointed. Because David realizes that as he honors Saul as God's anointed, he's honoring God as the one who's really in charge. If he'd began to tear into Saul, what he would have been doing is he would have been insulting and tearing into the people that God had placed over David in his life. Instead, David says that he will honor God and he wants to honor God by honoring the king who he had served under and went into battle under. By honoring Saul, David honors God. This is really countercultural for us because we live in a culture that hates authority of every shape and form. Be that politicians, police, so-called experts, traffic wardens. We all want to have our fair day in court with them, don't we? We all like to sit back and say, I could do better, I could do more. One of the huge things we've seen in this pandemic is the rise of false information. And we've seen lots of people who've begun to say, think that they don't want to listen to the authority of the experts over them, but they want to be their own authorities on it. And as Thomas Nichols, a writer, wrote a few years ago, he says that we end up in this Google-fueled, Wikipedia-based, blog-sodden collapse of society. When everybody has access to a smartphone and the internet, and everybody thinks that the answer to their solutions are only a few, quick, a few clicks and a few questions away. It can be so easy to look at contempt at anybody who might try to tell us what to do or tell us how we should live or to look at those who are in authority over us with a little bit of a snide snigger in our heart, thinking that really we could do it all better. But as Christians, we're called to a very different approach to our authorities. In 1 Peter 2, 
chapters, or verses 13 and 14, he tells us that we should submit for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether they're emperor or the supreme authority or to the governors or those who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. As Christians, we're to respect those who are in authority over us, the way David respected Saul, because we're respecting the fact that God has placed them there over us. And that's really what's summed up even in the core of our faith is respecting that other people might be able to speak into our life with an authority and with a a, a direction that we need to hear. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Um, As Presbyterians, one of the things we've always believed about that is that that, that's so much wider than just your father and mother. Um, The Westminster Longer Catechism says that it extends to not just our natural parents, but to our church, to our government, to our commonwealth, to all those who are superior in age. Because it recognizes that there's something in our heart that hates authority, isn't there? There's something in our heart that says, I want to be my own king. And there's something in our hearts that bristles whenever somebody tells us to do something and we think we know better. How quick we are to be snarky and cynical and complain about those who are in authority over us and how slow we are to pray for them and how slow we are to give them reverence and respect. Now we're wise in this. You know, God is also the God of wisdom. You know, if we have an evil dictator or we have somebody who's tyrannical over us, it's not that we blindly follow without any questioning. But there is a respect and a trust and a holding up in prayer that ought to model us. And surely we know that now as much as we should be doing at any stage in our history. The second thing we see that David shows is is respect but he also shows that there's forgiveness. We might think we have a hard time with our government and we might think we have a hard time with those who are in control over us. But I would hazard to say very few of us have a relationship with the Northern Irish executive that David had with Saul. David first meets Saul on a battlefield as a young boy. Saul, the king of Israel, in all his finery and armor, is being scared into his tent by a single Philistine giant called Goliath. And Saul is so vacid and empty of courage that he is quite happy to send David, a small boy, to fight Goliath in his place. Whenever somebody has to represent Israel in the battlefield, Saul sends a boy, David, rather than going himself. Saul becomes jealous of David as soon as he hears a song about David killing a few more people than him. Whenever David wants to marry one of his daughters, Saul sets David a challenge to go and kill a hundred Philistines in a hope that the Philistines will kill David. Saul plots to kill him. He throws a spear at him, not once, but twice. He sends messengers to try and kill him. And Saul has chased David all over the countryside of Israel. And whenever he finds out that a priest in a town called Nob helped David, 
Saul is so infuri- or so filled with rage that somebody might help David. He kills all the priests in the town and all of the women and all of the children and all of the animals in the town. David spares Saul twice. And even then he knows Saul still can't be trusted. Saul was a really bad king and a really bad king to David. And yet, in this lament that we hear from verses 19 onwards, David doesn't bring any of that up. David doesn't say, he threw a spear at me. He doesn't say he made me go kill 200 Phil, or 100 Philistines so I could marry my wife. He doesn't even bring up any of his feelings. Instead, he says in verse 22, For the blood of the slain and from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. He's saying, look at how glorious Saul was in battle. Look at how wonderful Saul was whenever he went to fight other people. His his sword came back to him and it had accomplished everything it needed to do. And he even comments on the character of Saul. He says, Saul and Jonathan In life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. This is the man who's tried to kill David almost nonstop for the past several years. And David's saying how loved and admired he was. We might be tempted to ask, what allows David to say this? What allows David to begin to forget the hurt he's experienced? And what allows him to say that Saul and Jonathan were loved and admired, swifter than eagles and stronger than lions? Well, I think our response to that is to say that David had experienced a God who forgives sin. Whenever David will go on and commit adultery with Bathsheba later in this book, he writes Psalm 51 in response that says, for I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me. Against you and you only God I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David recognizes it's not up to him to hold Saul to account for all the wrong things that Saul did. It's up to the God that David believes in. Because God is judge, David is free to let go and forgive. As we experience the gospel, as we experience a God who gives his one and only son that we might be forgiven of our sin wholly and completely and undeservedly, do we have the same attitude to forgiveness? Or do we hold on to our grudges thinking that one day we'll see them put right or one day we'll be able to fix it? Thinking really that we're the judge and king who has to hold everybody to account. Tim Keller, who was an author, wrote this. He said that we will only forgive if and as we see and feel the reality of God's massive and costly forgiveness of us through Christ. Only knowing how vast our debt to God was and that it is now canceled will enable us to have perspective on someone else's debt. Do you feel wronged? Do you feel hurt? 
by those above you in power and authority or just by friends and family? And do we think that if we keep on holding on to that hurt, we can put it right? Or do we need to realize that people like us who have experienced a wonderful forgiveness in Jesus, a forgiveness that cleanses us from every sin so that it is not held against our name in any shape or form, are people who can forgive freely because it's not up to us to hold people to account for their actions. We worship a God who does that for us. David could have harbored a lot of hurt about Saul. He could have got a, a real venting and a bit of, had a bit of a gurn about what Saul did in his life. But he recognizes that God is ultimately the one who forgives. There's nothing he can do about it. The gospel is that of an infinitely perfect God who looks at totally depraved people like us and forgives us before we even ask him to through sending his son to die on us on the cross if we simply receive and rest in his name. That's amazing forgiveness and it can't help but transform us. But finally, in, Saul, or in David's lament, we see there's something missing. Whenever the kings of Israel are gonna be marked, the words that often get used are how they were in the sight of God. They either say that they did evil in the sight of the Lord or they, they were firm in the sight of the Lord. But one thing we see is missing from David's account of Saul. There is no comment on Saul as a spiritual leader there's only comment on him as a military leader and as a political leader, but nothing to do with his God. The greatest praise for him is in verse 24, where it says, daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery and who adorned your, or your garments with ornaments of gold. David saying that Saul had seen a wonderful amount of kingdom expansion in his time as a king. They'd become richer as a country. They'd had their borders enlarged. They were doing better off. But is this really the way that you would want to be remembered as a king? That the woman of your country had nice dresses and earrings after a lifetime of work. As we think we are probably the kings over our own lives, I wanna ask you, how do you want to be remembered? And what are you living for? Are you living to be your own king who's able to give his people lovely clothes, nice trinkets, a nice holiday away every now and again? That we're able to build up a lovely castle of a three-bedroom house in the suburbs. And whenever we're bored, we can have the latest gadget brought into the house, be it a, a games console or Alexa or something that Apple have decided to tell us we all need. Are we entertaining our lives away on the frivolity of scarlet and finery and ornaments of gold? Living for the weekend, living for the fun, Neil Postman, who was an academic um, in Colombia over in America, writing in the 1980s, he said this, that when a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is re redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, 
when people become an audience and public business, a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility. Neil Postman, whenever he wrote that, he was writing that because he saw the dangers of television entering into people's homes in the 1980s. And he said that people were entertaining their lives away and it was resulting in culture death. How many of us are guilty of that? thinking that we are here to be our own kings, to build our little kingdom and to dispense our gifts to our family and friends as the, as the recipients, as the people who are under our kingly reign. Forgetting that we were made for something so much greater and richer. That we were, built, we were made to build not a kingdom that is just our own little world, but a kingdom that will never end. That our hope might be that we would see Jesus lifted high and not our name lifted high. And that whenever we pass, we are remembered in the way that uh, Jesus tells the story of the servants in Matthew 15, where we might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Are we like Saul, trying to assert ourselves as our own king and leaving only frivolity in the end? Or are we realizing that we have a king that is even greater than us, a king who is the ultimate and final authority, a king who forgives us and forgives us freely whenever we call upon his name, a king who has a kingdom that will never end and never cease, a king who is willing to go to the cross for us. A king like Jesus has a kingdom so much greater than anyone we could build by ourselves. So let's come before him and let's see him as the true and perfect king who we get to worship and adore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful good news that Jesus is king. We can be so caught up in frivolity and things that are temporary and things that will pass away. Father, help us be continually reminded that Jesus is the ultimate king and it is a delight that he tells us to come and share in our master's happiness. Would we do that more and more this week? In Jesus' name we ask, amen.